But for lots of different reasons, if we weren't given the support we needed to feel our feelings and to really learn how to move through pain, um, what can happen is we in, we sort of internalize a narrative that we need to sort of armor up against pain. We need to fight it. We need to mini- like we need to ignore it. We need to suppress it. We need to minimize it. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that we, a lot of us do what's called white knuckling. Like when pain comes, our response to it is instead of sort of listening to it saying, what are, what is it you're trying to tell me? We essentially say, shut up, get in the backseat. Like I'm going to push even harder or I'm going to push my body even harder or I'm going to fight or I'm, I'm going to run from it. And that from a physiological standpoint, what that tends to do is actually um, drive us even more outside of um, what's called the window of tolerance. So that window in which we can actually feel our feelings and our body is able to process it. That was Andy Kolber, author of the brand new book called Try Softer. Andy is a licensed professional counselor. She's an author, a speaker. She lives in Castle Rock, Colorado. And this book centers on her training in body-centered therapies. And Andy is passionate about the integration of faith and psychology. She's written for Relevant, CT Women, and Encourage. And so as a personal survivor of trauma, Andy brings compassion, self-compassion, and a vision for what to do with our pain other than just try harder. So enjoy this conversation with Andy Kolber. Well, hi, Andy. It's so good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure. Well, and I, I'm trying to remember even way back when, because <laughs> it was a year or two ago or more, how we met and, and what we started talking about first. Was it sort of book writing in general? Well, I think if I remember correctly, I marched myself up to you at the Festival of, in, oh, of Faith and yeah. Writing. Yeah. And I think I just, I had kind of, uh, become familiar with you through like Instagram and your most recent book. And I just was like, you know what? I think he would be a great person to connect with. So I think I just, I just walked right up and and introduced myself. I do remember that now. And I remember loving, just loving that, loving talking to you and getting to know you. And then of course, um, you know, we went into, um, the podcast that we did, which I really, really enjoyed. And what I find it's, it's, I don't know how all this works, but, but what I find and what I found with you in particular is that I think our audiences, uh, overlap quite a bit, you know? And so like I would retweet something that you would say, and then a bunch of people like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so you're doing great work and I can't wait to get into the conversation. Mm, Thank you so much. Yeah. And I totally agree. I, I often resonate with so much that you say as well. So you've written this book, Try Softer, A Fresh Approach to, oh my gosh, now I can't even read my own writing. That is so lame. To move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode and into a life of connection and joy. Yeah. So, um, what a bold title. I remember with my book whole, the subtitle was restoring what's broken in me, you and the entire world. And every time I said that to someone, they would be like, 
well, that's kind of a tall order. Right? <laughs> and I, I feel like in a very good way, the same is true for your subtitle, um, moving out of anxiety, stress and survival mode and into a life of connection and joy. So, uh, tell me first, like, like what was the journey of deciding that this content needed to be a book for you? Mm. Yeah. Um, this is, this is such a great question. I think, so for me in so many ways, I, I know you've heard some of my story, but I think that this book idea, it really began as a love letter to my younger self. Like there was this sense of wishing that I had had these resources when I was younger and that I didn't really have a lot of language. I didn't feel like I didn't feel like there was great, um, there wasn't a lot that I was feeling like connected with me as a person who'd experienced trauma, but was like fairly high functioning, or at least like that's how I looked, you know? Yeah. And so over the course of a decade, I think that there is like this, there was this sort of unsettledness that continued to grow in me as though be, my work as a therapist felt so disconnected from what I for the most part, saw being represented um, both in whiter culture and then also in especially Christian culture. Yeah. Like I felt like, um, you know, having been a therapist for over a decade, I was like, why are we not talking about these really core foundational issues that that really affect how we show up in the world? And so it's probably been... It was like December of 2014 is when I started blogging. And it was literally almost just like this dare to myself because I just felt like I had something to say and I didn't know where to say it. And so I just was like, what the heck? I'm going to just, I'm going to take a risk, you know? Yeah. And it was so scary. I just remember feeling so nervous <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Um, but over time it was like, I think my confidence and even my own healing just continued. And it was probably about, gosh, I want to say about three years ago, I had had some, um, a good amount of writing that I had been keeping that I thought could become a book. And then something just lit a spark in me and I just knew it was time. I just was like, this is the time to have this be bigger than a love letter to my younger self. Like I want it to be for everybody else's younger selves too. Like all the, all those of us who have like young parts of ourselves that are still wounded and hurting or, um, or just here in the present day are not fully, um, feeling like we can show up in the world. So it definitely has evolved over time. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, we, we, we can start the only place where we can start, and that is where we are, right? And so maybe that's longing for better resources. And I think I tend to enjoy books and and things from from people who who essentially answer like I'm I'm writing this book because I needed to read it, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I needed something that made sense for me. And so I mean I really resonate with that. Um, so how do you think? When it comes to processing pain, mm. how do you think most of us employ 
like a try harder approach? In what ways do you see people doing that? And maybe even do you see your own self doing that? Yeah. So I think the, you know, the layers to this idea is that early on, if we, for lots of different reasons, and I know we've talked about this in in our other podcast, but for lots of different reasons, if we weren't given the support we needed to feel our feelings and to really learn how to move through pain, um, what can happen is we in, we sort of internalize a narrative that we need to sort of armor up against pain. We need to fight it. We need to minute, like we need to ignore it. We need to suppress it. We need to minimize it. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that we, a lot of us do what's called white knuckling. And what I mean by that is essentially this is what, like, it's a form of armor. Like when pain comes, our response to it is instead of sort of listening to it saying, what are, what is it you're trying to tell me? We essentially say, shut up, get in the backseat. Like I'm going to push even harder, or I'm going to push my body even harder, or I'm going to fight, or I'm, I'm going to run from it. And that from a physiological standpoint, what that tends to do is actually um, drive us even more outside of um, what's called the window of tolerance. So that window in which we can actually feel our feelings and our body is able to process it um, successfully. So when we white knuckle it, when we suppress, when we ignore, we are essentially not, we're moving outside of that window and we're sort of, um, that's what makes sometimes those little T traumas sort of accumulate over time. Okay. I think that's so good. I mean, I, uh, I remember in my interview with Hillary McBride, she talked about little T traumas versus big T. So maybe just in a, in a couple of sentences or as briefly as you can mm-hmm. describe what you mean when you say little T traumas versus like a big T trauma. Yeah. So the, the first thing that I think just helpful to hear is that I define trauma as anything that overwhelms our nervous system's ability to cope. So essentially, that an experience that feels too big stays stuck in our body. And that's what makes it trauma. Now, within that, the little t trauma um, can truly be just about anything that we are not able to fully process. It could be grief, it could be transitions, it could be experiences from childhood of being shamed, it could be um, not having our needs met in childhood, therefore we don't know how to meet our needs in adulthood. Um, Whereas big T trauma has a little, like clinically is, um, you know, has some really specific criteria that that has to meet. And I won't go fully into that, but that typically involves things that um, essentially where there's a threat to our life or observing somebody else's life being threatened. That can include like sexual violence, natural disaster. Um, and so there's, there's a little bit more specific criteria for that. Um, so a lot of the folks that I work with, and especially in my book, Try Softer, I'm really especially looking at um, these little T traumas because I find this is the area where our culture doesn't really have almost any language to talk about it. Right. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example and, and you, you tell me what you would tell me. (laughs) Okay. If you're up for it, are you up for that? I'm up for that. Yes. Okay. So, uh, 
probably a month ago, I was in a grocery store and I thought I saw someone walk in with whom I have an unresolved conflict. Mm. And um, it, it was um, a pretty big conflict and it is still unresolved. And my body response was an immediate, like a, probably an, an adrenaline rush but it felt like shame. You know, it felt like this overwhelming sense of like I froze and I, I wasn't going to know what to do. Now it turned out to not be the person, but if it was the person I was going to be like, okay, like how small, like, can I become invisible? <laughs> can mm -hmm. I run? Can I? And, and I think that's, again, I mean, <clears throat> that's probably what you're talking about when you talk about a little T trauma. Mm -hmm. Are there now in that moment, what could I have done? But, but are there ways that you help people even recognize what's happening in the body in that moment so that they can make sense of it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I would affirm that, you know, your body is obviously having a reaction to something that it is perceiving as threatening. And so it's like the, obviously the experience in the grocery store wasn't the little T trauma, but the thing that triggered, like the original event, yeah. it sounds like, um, you experienced that as a little T trauma and your body, um, is looking for cues. So when you're in that situation, our bodies are wired to keep us safe. And so your body picked up something that reminded it of a previous threat. And so it was giving you all these red alerts because it was like, oh, we've been down that road again before. So, so how, what do we need to do to keep you safe? Right. Yeah. So I only just share that because I think first and foremost, I think it's important to understand what's happening in that here and now. And, and I think it also can help us with self-compassion, right? Because I think often in our culture, in a situation like that, when we don't have proper language, what can happen is we shame ourselves. We're like, wow, look at what, look how weak I am. I can't believe I responded that way. How, you know, who do I think that I am or, you know, why, why am I so, why am I not forgiving this person? I mean, there's so many mm. things that we might say to ourselves, but if we could reframe it, like your body went outside of its window of tolerance because it um, perceived a person that you experience as potentially threatening. And so therefore your prefrontal cortex was either almost fully or at least partly offline, which kept you from thinking about that in a, um, a way that made you feel like you were like sort of integrated and fully yourself. Instead, you were just responding from the lower part of your brain. That's really helpful. I remember, um, so someone explained that to me in this way that the prefrontal cortex, the reason why it goes offline is because, um, if it really was a situation where like physically you were unsafe, your, your brain knows that like, you don't, you don't need to be worried about, um, the peripheral vision and you notice, Oh, the Minnesota Vikings are playing on the TV. Oh, what's the score? You know, cause that would, <laughs> that would then sort of take you away from that moment where you have to decide, am I going to run? Am I going to fight? Am I, you know, right. Um, right. So, mm -hmm. th so there's this great gift in your brain sort of knowing what to do uh, in that moment, but then also um, be 
because we're no longer fighting saber-toothed tigers in the in the savannah or whatever, um, these these uh, these these kinds of situations that I just described are are dangerous in a certain way, mm-hmm. um, but um, but or and um, we need to figure out ways to sort of recenter right and get sort mm-hmm. of the adrenaline sort of back down to a normal level. Uh, how do you, how do you help people? And this is where I want to, I want to get into EMDR a little bit because I know you do EMDR work. Um, uh, many people, and I have thought this for years, there's nothing wrong with talk therapy. Cognitive therapy is so good and so helpful, but there's also, um, there's also a lot of research that says, that you need more that when you have stored a memory in the amygdala and it just can't get out um and your normal rem sleep is not gonna sort that out for you you need something else in order to help and so talk a little bit about why you do emdr why you think it's important for people as they move through trauma yeah. No. And, yeah. And, and please, please correct any bad information <laughs> I just gave right there in my very unscientific uh, way of explaining it. No, I mean overall, I think that you know you did a great job of of overall explaining that. And I think before I go into that, I think the thing I would just add is um, that prefrontal cortex is responding what to it per what it um not your prefrontal cortex your body is responding to exactly what you're saying what it's perceiving as threat and even though it's not a saber-toothed tiger um because of lots of different reasons and again if we go back to childhood this is where it often even though some things can seem sort of innocuous experiences from childhood are often connected to little t trauma that create the original template Mm -hmm. in which the thing felt the most threatening. Because if you think about it, belonging as a, as a child actually is a matter of life or death. Because if you do not feel, and if you do not experience the protection of your family, who is going to feed you? Where where will you live? Where will you get your needs met? Right? So I think it's super important to validate that we're not, our bodies are responding to very real experiences. Now that also though, doesn't mean that in the here and now that there aren't some new choices. And I, you know, I think as we segue into this talking about EMDR, I think that's the beauty of Trisofter. Because it's all about paying compassionate attention to our experience. And so in that, what that situation you describe, the more self-aware we become, the better we get at self-compassion, the more we can respond more quickly and intuitively to the information our body's giving us. So we might be able to reorient ourselves to the here and now. And even though you know that person might be a little bit difficult for you to be with, if you can reground yourself and be able to get reconnected to the present in your prefrontal cortex, we can help our bodies to actually experience a level of calm and navigate that situation in a way that feels congruent with who we really are. And so it doesn't mean we don't necessarily need to go and do some trauma work with that. We probably do. 
But I always say that try softer is often about, um, it's about how we interact with our pain. And often it makes us more resilient because we're not shaming or suppressing our experience. Instead, instead it's almost like we're listening with compassion to our body and like, almost like it's like our child. And we're saying to our child, oh, you're so scared. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. How can I sort of advocate for you? Because I can see how much this is affecting you. Um, and I just love that because I think that that is such a beautiful way that God created us, that we have the capability to do this, you know, like that is honestly, I think it's phenomenal. Um, so, so with that said, with your, what you said about EMDR, um, one of the things that I would say that integrates with EMDR in this whole tri-softer perspective is oftentimes what happens is I like, let's say you were my client just theoretically mm-hmm. and you came in and you told me this story and we, you know, we'd been maybe working together and I felt like you had the resources to do the processing with me. We would go back to your earliest sort of memory or experience where you felt something similar, both in your body, in your emotions, um, even a negative belief that it brings up in yourself. And we would actually start processing it from that memory before we did any kind of processing with your later memory. Right. And I think that's so, okay. I have several follow-up questions, but (laughs) just, um, can you explain the mechanics of EMDR before we, cause I, I can imagine even though it's getting more mainstream, many people don't know what it is. And so just talk about what it is and, and, and why, why it actually is so effective. Hey, we'll get right back to the podcast, but I want to let you know about a new resource that I'm creating called Finding God After Losing Faith. It's for anyone who feels stuck in their religious system, who feels like they can't possibly make it one more day without believing something new. In this weekly email, I'll provide links and articles poems and some of the best and most inspiring things that I know about in order to help you keep finding God even if you've lost your faith. But the only way to get it is by subscribing to my weekly email. And you can do that by going to my website, steveweens.com, and then scroll to the bottom and subscribe to Finding God After Losing Faith. I'm really excited about this one, and I hope it is a really helpful weekly resource for you as you continue to search for God. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, so EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and it's basically a modality that was first identified by a woman named Francine Shapiro. And the backstory is that she was walking through the park one day and noticed that as she moved her eyes back and forth and she was thinking about something disturbing, it got a lot better. Mm-hmm. And that got her really curious as to why that would be. And so what became apparent over like the next, the next couple decades is essentially that when both hemisphere or when both sides of our body are sort of stimulated, then both hemispheres of our brain get stimulated. And, and this is significant because it seems to 
um, sort of act similar to, to REM sleep. And the processing that happens in REM sleep is really special. And when we have both sides, this, both sides of our brain processing, it seems to unlock though that those traumas, those disturbances that have been stuck. And it gives us essentially a new opportunity to reprocess disturbing material um, in a way that essentially it's like taking a file that was misplaced, like put in the wrong spot. And now we're like filing it in the right spot. Like that's what it sort of, that's what it kind of does in terms of trauma processing. Okay. So tell me if I'm getting this right. Um, EMDR is, is, is a kind of, uh, a way to simulate REM sleep. So when we, when we go into REM sleep, what's happening is our memories are being stored, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, certain things that we don't need just get just sort of thrown in the, in the quote unquote trash. We need to remember that that, uh, uh, that wrapper at the, um, at, the gro- at the grocery store is red instead of yellow. And we don't, but there are other, other memories that we really do need to store somewhere so that makes sense to our story and to our world. But there are certain events that, um, REM sleep can't don't doesn't know where to store, and so it gets stored in the amygdala or or somewhere where it just gets really really stuck. And so, is EMDR a way of focusing on those memories that you don't even know are stuck, so that we can reprocess them, restore them, and move into more healthy, not more healthy, um, move like not get so triggered by things that don't have to be so triggering. Yes. I mean, that's, that's essentially it. And, and the, the connection with trauma is that if it's overwhelming to our nervous system, that's what causes it not to be processed um, correctly. And so the thing about trauma is that it, it isn't an integrated memory a lot right. of the time. And so sometimes, you know, like with EMDR, someone may not have a full memory, but they have body sensations. So we can actually target is what the words we use, but essentially that's, that's really focusing, um, on certain elements of the trauma that are still stuck. So that could be a sound that could be a false belief about ourselves or a negative belief. Um, it could be a certain type of emotion that um, even though we know something might not be true, like maybe we know we're not a loser. Mm-hmm. We feel very deeply in our body <laughs> that yeah. we're a loser, right? Like that is a very, that's very symptomatic of trauma. And so it's really like this process of helping someone have the support they need to sort of in a safer way re-experience the trauma so that it can be processed correctly to the point that it is, we look for something that like, it's essentially like neutralized or it isn't disturbing anymore. So it doesn't mean that we forget it. And it doesn't mean that we're like, yay, I'm glad it happened. Um, instead it means that that memory has been processed correctly. And so we have the ability to connect it to our whole brain. Right. And our, the rest of our brain is able to be like, 
you know, a lot of times I find people see things differently after they've processed, like maybe they be, they're like, well, I was just a kid. I was doing the best I could or, oh, there were other people who cared about me. I just couldn't see it then. Um, or, you know, it's like we can see the fuller picture because we've, we've been able to process it adequately. Mm, That's good. So good. And so helpful. You're so good at explaining (laughs) things in ways that, you know, hopefully people can understand because I want to get to, um, I want to get to try softer in particular, how do you help people, um, be self-compassionate and and the reason why I ask it that way is I think so many of us have so many uh, shame responses and negative self-talk, but we're not even totally aware that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you help people both recognize where they are doing that and then move toward a different like I liked how you said, you know, you can sort of externalize our own selves and treat our own selves as we would treat a, a, a child who was experiencing trauma. Mm. Um, how do you help people move toward more of a self-compassionate viewpoint of themselves? Mm. Yeah, I will say it's some of the hardest work that I have ever personally engaged in. Um, and yet I you know, I just think it's so, it's so valuable and it's so, you know, so worthwhile, but you know, so the thing, the term that I use synonymously with Trisofter is this concept of compassionate attention. Mm. And I think the way that we begin to cultivate that is really first through, you know, I start the book by really helping people understand our bodies and understanding why maybe we haven't been compassionate. Um, why almost like there's a sense in which, um, for a lot of us being highly critical of ourselves actually has been a survival mechanism. Hmm. And I know that can be really confusing, but the idea is that if like, let's say again, um, let's say we're trying to make sure that we fit into, you know, our family of origin or to a group or a system that we kind of need for survival. And the only way that we feel like we can fit or belong or matter is by essentially betraying ourselves. Hmm. The way that our body adapts to that is by internalizing the voices that we're hearing that are telling us all the reasons that we don't fit in. Um, so for example, you know, someone who grows up in a family where a a parent is highly critical will often internalize a voice of that. They have a, a internal critic that is very similar in, in, in terms of what they say, um, that person's critic sounds like maybe that parent. And from an adaptive standpoint, the reason is, is that it actually, it's actually like our body is trying to keep us in the herd. <laughs> hmm. We're trying to be like, like if I shame myself, then my mom doesn't have to shame me. Wow. So I learn to shame myself and I learn to push myself past my limits because I recognize that this is how I will get my needs met. Now it hmm. may require me to literally tear myself apart. But because of how we're wired, 
we will go to great lengths to maintain some sort of connection to our group, to our parents, to our family of origin. Um, and so the work of Trisopter is this journey of first, I really love to share that information with people so that they can begin to approach their story with more curiosity first, like just beginning to notice like where, like, where is my self-critic like showing up and, and I'm shaming myself and, and is it possible that I could begin to help myself realize that I'm actually safe now? Like my body in the here and the now is safe. And if I could help myself regulate, then I could actually begin to have a different narrative that I talk to that younger part of myself that's probably still really carrying all that pain. And so, oh yeah, go right ahead. Well, uh, so let me just... Let me just pause and pick apart a couple of things that are just fascinating to me. Number one, our herd mentality, the, the, the desire, the need to be a part of a group is so strong that we will, <laughs> in a sense, we will scapegoat ourselves, punish ourselves, be whatever, um, play whatever role that we need to play, even if it's horribly damaging uh and that's how we make sense of Mm -hmm. (laughs) these right am am i hearing that right you're hearing that exactly right yep and i think that's why it's like i think it's so important that that compassion piece i think begins to be cultivated as we recognize that our body has literally been doing everything possible just to keep us alive, like just to keep us safe. And for some of us, we've minimized that because we're like, well, I wasn't in, you know, I wasn't in an earthquake. I haven't experienced X, Y, and Z. But I think if we can begin to validate the psychological um, ramifications of a feeling like if you were to honor your true self, you might truly lose yeah. Everything closest to you. Yeah. And, and that's where, I mean, this work, I, I just, it's so, it's so sacred because it really involves going back. And, so, and oftentimes, you know, I say this in the book, oftentimes we need a therapist to walk with us alongside us. But I think TriSofter gives folks, and I hope uh, uh, will give folks sort of a template to begin to understand there is a way to be with ourselves in our pain. And that doesn't mean we do it all by ourselves, right? Like we still need people. We absolutely need support. But healing really begins when we give ourselves permission to really listen and honor the story, honor the pain, honor the the narrative that our body is literally carrying every single day. And it's not until our body feels safe enough to really move through that pain that it won't always be expressed in that same way. Right. Okay. I want to, oh, so good. Andy, thank you so much. I, I want to move to because a big part of your therapy and this book, Trisopter, 
has to do with faith and integrating mm-hmm. these ideas into faith. And, and, and I know that, <clears throat> um, you use that in such a positive way, mm-hmm. but I'm a pastor and I work with so many people who come, who end up in my office in the pews at the church where I serve and their faith system has been so damaging. Mm. Like it, it's been, it's been so traumatizing. It's, it's re-traumatized yeah. them that, and, and, and so this tribe, this herd, mm. um, has, you know, and they've been doing whatever they've been doing. They've been punishing themselves. They've been scapegoating themselves. And then they finally come to a point where they say, enough. Like I cannot, mm. I, I can no longer. So they make a break, but they lose relationships. They lose sometimes family members turn against them. So how do you help? Gosh, this is such a big question and feel free to say pass. But how does faith begin to be a, a healthy thing again when you deal with, because I know you must deal with folks like that as mm. well. Mm-hmm. How does how do you help people begin to have a positive view of faith and God and and um, you know because religion the 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 word I think means it's like it means ligament so religion mm. is supposed to hold you together not mm. tear you apart so yeah I mean any, any so that was about seventeen questions so <laughs> anyone you want to try to answer go ahead yeah no I think that you're asking, and and this is so important. And, you know, I position myself in a very interesting place (laughs) in which I am a therapist, I am a trauma informed therapist. And, you know, I, I do integrate elements of faith, you know, and so already that is an inherently sticky place (laughs) to be because, um, gosh, there, all of these things have really big ramifications that, and just big, big things that come out of them. But I think where I would want to go, and I hope, you know, for anyone who's hearing this, I really believe, and, and I really tried to write Trisopter from this perspective that like we are invited to experience God, but God is also I just believe God is the kindest, most compassionate parent we could ever have. Yeah. And using a template as like my, like me being a parent, I think about my children and them experiencing pain and them experiencing trauma. And I would never, especially knowing what I know about trauma, force them into situations that they're not ready for. They don't have the support for that they don't feel safe for, because that is how we get re-traumatized. And so, you know, I, I can't speak for God, (laughs) but I think I can say safely say that, um, doing this work of trying softer is this journey in which we give ourselves permission to pace ourselves, Hmm. to listen to the information of our body, really believing. And I think really believing in faith that God is present here right in this precise moment and that there is like, like we'll go at the pace we can go, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think the more I often say, the more complicated the trauma, the more complex the healing. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know what, if someone has experienced really complex spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma, you know what, of course, it's going to take, it's going to be a longer road. And there is no shame going as slow as they need. Like, and, and that may mean, you know, really needing to step back, um, really having to um, take things at whatever pace their body is helping them to say, this is okay, this is not okay um, for me, you know? And, and, and I just really do believe that because God is present in the here and now, um, that doesn't mean that they don't have the opportunity to experience God in the way that feels safe to them right now. Right. You know, and, and oftentimes like the way that trauma healing often works is that, you know, we, we do, we, we process the amount that we can tolerate and we also celebrate our wins. Yeah. So like when we experience people who are safe in maybe a faith context, that's a great resource for someone not to go out and be like, now I get to go out and be friends with a hundred more people. It's more <laughs> like, no, 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 just, just like savor that. Like I would encourage folks to utilize those safe connections and really, um, really use that as a place to sort of, to practice and to, and to feel, um, you know, to just sort of build the trust with themselves and potentially with God. Um, but one, one way I try to frame things and try softer is I always try to give an option. Like if this feels helpful to you, here is something you could do. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that is because I want people to hear that they have a choice. Yeah. And I think that really, really matters, um, in any type of healing. And that definitely includes, um, from in a spiritual context too. Yeah. I think that's really, that's really good. And it sounds like, um, teaching people to listen to their bodies. It's almost like retraining people that they can trust their bodies and what their bodies are telling themselves. Is that, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, sometimes, um, again, if we have more trauma, sometimes our body can be misfiring. Right. Meaning we're reacting to things that are actually safe as though they're unsafe. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so that doesn't mean that we don't trust, we don't, can't learn to trust our bodies, but we oftentimes it's like getting really curious and then really getting underneath, like, is this actually unsafe or is my body responding to something that feels familiar and that's actually rooted in a past situation. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is true in the sense that it is so much about the body. It's about learning to re-inhabit our bodies and sort of sort of cultivating trust in ourselves. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, even even to identify, oh, this is a safe place. My body mm-hmm. has been misfiring would require a kind of unique and, and listening to your body. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, okay. 
um, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how can it already be um, <laughs> 45 minutes? So if if someone bought your book, Try Softer, uh, what, what hopes do you have for them? What, what, you know, in the beautiful ideal world if someone reads it, they get it actually what you're trying to say, they incorporate some of the things that you're, um, introducing, what do you hope for them? Yeah. You know, this is, I've been answering this in a two part way. And I think the first thing is that I just really hope that this will begin to give people new language about how to talk about their experiences, how to talk about what's going on with them. Um, sort of like, you know, we know that validating our own experience is in and of itself helps to soothe our amygdala. Yeah. <laughs> like that, it, like just naming our emotion and our experience does a ton to just actually re-regulate ourselves. So I think a part of what's been happening in our culture is we, we everybody's feeling like their pain isn't valid. <laughs> so right. I think the first hope that I have is just that people begin to get more language. And then the second thing is that I really pray that folks walk away from this with this deep sense of their own belovedness and that they are worthy of compassionate attention in the same way that God is already compassionate to them and that this book would sort of give them the tools to live out that compassionate attention. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I think in so many ways it, it, it does because it, it, it grounds people in some, I think, really helpful science about the body and the brain and how it works. But then there's there's these little uh, chapter ending questions, you know, for people to reflect on and, and, and go deeper on and little practices that they can work with. So I think for any listeners who are considering or listening to Andy and saying, wow, this this might be really helpful. Uh, I think Andy brings a very gentle uh, but very informative approach to how to listen to your body, how to how to begin to cultivate self compassion, um, and how to take it at your own pace. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's those are some of the things I appreciated most about the book. And I, I, I okay, so you're probably not supposed to ask an, an author this <laughs> question, but it's like people that really read your book and and pick up what you're trying to put down they need to work it, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not, this is not a book where you're going to breezily read through in a weekend and feel great. You know, like this is a book where you're going to, it's going to be dog eared. It's going to be, mm -hmm. uh, the cover is going to get a little mangled because you're going to need to sit with stuff for a while and stop for a while and, and linger on things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I agree totally. And I think what I often say is that like, like you don't really arrive. <laughs> well, of and, course, yeah and, yeah. and I think I think like I would just say is that I I practice trace after like right now in my mm -hmm. life, you know? And I think that's such an important idea is that we're practicing it. Like one day we might be really self-compassionate and the next day the critic is really feeling it and really getting down on you. And it's like, and we still <laughs> We practice trying to there, you know, and it's like this really like it, it is sort of a faith walk to be able to say, 
like, it's okay that I'm in this liminal space where it's not about arriving. It's not about perfection. It's about, it's about being with ourselves in the face of the pain in the way that a lot for many of us, like, like in the way, like we never got that support when we were growing up or we didn't get the support when we needed it. So we're going to give ourselves the support we need now. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay. Audie, last question. Would you, if you're willing and you don't have to be willing, you can pass on this question, but just give us an example sometime in the last week where you actually practice try softer what happened and how did you respond and how did it help? Yeah. Well, so for me, um, one of the things that I notice, I'm in this season, you know, of book launching and there's lots of social media and there's lots of various things, which for the most part is really cool and really fun. But what I notice is I translation, (laughs) it really sucks some of the times too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. Sorry. I had to interrupt. I'm so so terrible. It's, it's hard work. That's what I'll say. It's hard work. Um, it's, it's good work, but it's hard work at times. And I, because of my own personal story, um, it's easy for me to get sort of overstimulated, which essentially means I can get close to my window of tolerance. I can start to go outside of my window, even when things are actually good. Like, like my, like maybe I'll start to get anxious and it's like, Oh, I I feel like I need to get back to this person and I haven't done this. And so for me, um, part of the way I practice this is by sort of stopping Uh, a lot of times it means closing my computer, um, taking a moment, taking a breath and actually like literally noticing my feet on the ground, um, pressing against the ground and noticing the texture of the ground And then if possible, a lot of times I will go on a walk. Um, Walks are like my biggest spiritual practice right now Mm -hmm. because it's this really gentle way of like I'm not punishing my body. I'm giving my body permission to process a lot of energy (laughs) that's coming up in my life right now. And I just so and so for me, like taking that time to listen to often there's a few songs that really just like, it's like they are validating my experience. And then I come back and I'm like, okay, I'm back to myself. Like I'm with myself again. And now I can sort of look at my life and say, okay, what's urgent? What's not? Um, is it okay for those people to have to wait a little longer? You know what? Almost always it is. (laughs) Or, Um, is it okay? You know, I try to take Sundays off, um, of all social media as a way to let my soul just sort of breathe and unwind. Um, and so those are some ways that like right now, like that's literally how I'm trying softer. That's good. That's good. So I'm sort of hearing you, you're trying to find ways to sort of re embody your experience, Mm -hmm. you know, feet flat on the floor, taking walks, using that energy, um, and sort of getting regrounded. I like that. Mm. Um, I really like that. It's one of my friends, sometimes she will, and again, this is another way to activate both hemispheres. She will cross her arms and then mm-hmm. tap her, um, both of her arms, you know, like mm-hmm. with her right hand, she'll tap her left arm, left hand, tap her right arm. And that sounds like, well, why would you do that? But, but again, it's like, it's, it's activating, your mm-hmm. um, both hemispheres, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's a part of what I love about walks, you know, mm-hmm. is because it's both, it's a both hemisphere because of both legs. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, yeah. Any way that we can, it's like that reintegration is so key. And that's part of what's beautiful about the both hemispheres too, mm-hmm. right? Is we're really, we're really doing everything we can to support a whole brain, whole body way to be in the world. Cause that's really what allows us to have access to our truest self. And so I want as much as possible to interact with the world from my truest self. That's so good. Okay, Andy. Um, so the book is called Try Softer, a fresh approach to move us out of anxiety, stress, and survival mode and into a life of connection and joy. It's out now, so you can buy it wherever you buy books. Uh, and so I encourage you to do that. Andy, is there any other way that you would want people to connect with your work, um, follow you on certain sites or anything coming up that you would want to alert people to? Yeah. So I would love folks to check me out at ondicolber.com. And I actually, if you do end up signing up for my email list, one of the things I have as a part of that is I send out videos that sort of are, um, really about, you know, like one of them is a grounding video. So, and that's a way that we, that folks can sort of come back to their window of tolerance. So that's a resource for folks. If they're interested, you can also find me, um, on Twitter at Andy Colber, or you can find me on Instagram at Andy Colber. Okay. And all those will be listed on the show notes, steveweens.com slash show notes. Um, and then just, if you need to search, if you're listening to this 17 years later, um, <laughs> and you know, the website is, is updated with other content, uh, just search for Andy Kolber or try softer. Yeah. Uh, thanks Andy so much. This was really interesting, helpful. And I hope that your journey of releasing this book out into the world and your work is one of, um, of joy and fulfillment. I think you're really doing things that help people in, in very practical, very practical ways. So Mm. thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this good word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash this good word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.